Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Evan Kaplan, CEO of Influx Data, a time series data platform that's raised over $170 million in funding. Evan, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I was doing my research before the interview, and I see that you started a company in 1996 that you eventually sold. So take me back to 1996. What was going on in your world? Oh, my God, doing your research. We should have hidden that research. So... I have a very different background than most entrepreneurs and most most other folks. I don't have a computer science degree. I have an environmental science degree. I spent most of my formative years, my 20s to late 20s, climbing and skiing around the world, guiding, working for different organizations. So um, in my late 20s, I joined an aerospace company, originally doing management training and development, which is very different. And that came from my guiding skills and working with groups and things like that. And after a year of that, I realized that I wasn't, I really wanted to be in the heart of the business. And I became a junior program manager doing flight computers, aerospace stuff, things like that for Boeing and Airbus. It's really wonderful experience program managing, you know, 20 teams of 25, 30 engineers. It's a lot of responsibility at a relatively young age. And then what was great about that role is you'd have these big projects, big airframe projects, and then... Mm-hmm. I'd be able to go and take off on these expeditions for two or three months when one project was done and another project was done. But through that process, they eventually put me through business school. And then after business school, a friend of mine, a climbing buddy, had started a software company in the early days of networking. So early days of TCPIP networking, when TCPIP was becoming the protocol that drove the internet, and it was going into large enterprises. And so I joined that company. The company grew from like 10 million to 140, 150 million or so while I was there. But I got to witness the beginnings of, you know, the very early internet, you know, FTP, Telenet, the original browsers. And so in 96, I decided to start my own company, which was a security company built on the concept of SSL based VPNs. And so I did that with a partner, my CTO and I. We started it, we raised. $750,000. We couldn't imagine how we would spend all of that money. But over the next four years, the company grew quite fast and we were kind of a unicorn going into 2000. And then we were working with bankers to go public and super excited. And I thought I was incredibly talented. I thought I was going to be incredibly wealthy and all the things that go with that. And then in 2000, the latter half of 2000, the market crashed and we had 400 people burning a lot of money. We had real estate leases that, that anticipated growth, and we we had to correct. And so we cut it down to 120 people, which was brutal. And we eventually got it to work. We sold it off in parts, and we sold eventually the business got sold to SonicWall, which is part of Dell Corporation. And so we got out. We got out okay. We learned a lot. I would have rather been lucky, but we learned a lot in the process. And so that period of time was super exciting. Right, building, you know, actually it's exciting the whole time, but that was uniquely exciting for me. I was a first time CEO, 
trying to figure out all this stuff, raising a lot of capital, all working with venture capital, that sort of stuff. So that's a long-winded answer to get you to that first business, which was Avondale, which is now a successful product client as part of Dell. We like long-winded answers. Those are the fun ones. Right. <laughs> now, I'd love to ask a bit more about that. So what was it like just going through that experience for you of, you know, thinking that you have this IPO coming, you're going to have, you know, big success, financial success, all this stuff. It sounds like you got very, very close and then it didn't work out in the end. So take me back to like inside your head. How are you like coaching yourself through that? Because I think there's, you know, a lot that can be learned from those types of painful experiences. So let's just call these wisdom building experiences. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's cliche, but it's also true. You're never as bad as you think you are, and you're never as good as you think you are. Same with your business. Your business is never as good as you think it is, magical. It's never as bad as you think it is. And so you want to have a sort of a tempered view. And, you know, being a first-time CEO, but I would tell you, even to this day, you know, if there's CEOs out there who don't have the imposter syndrome, then, you know, then I have to question their fundamental outlook on life because, you know, these are tremendously responsible jobs, even at small companies. And, you know, you always feel a bit of an imposter. And so I was certainly feeling like that during that period of time. The elevation, the altitude that we were gaining felt, you know, like we worked hard, but, you know, it felt pretty high. And then the altitude we lost after it was over felt really low. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was just, you know, but all through that, you have a fear of failure and an excitement for the opportunity. But I'm tied, but they also have this deep commitment to these people. And I don't just mean the employees who are central to all of this, but also to the investors and you make commitments to. And you just feel like, you know, you feel like you're really, your back is against the wall all the time and you never put the ball down. And that, I think that comes with the role. Now, I, I just finished reading a book about the climbers in Kyrgyzstan. That was in like the, the 90s or something like that, where they got stuck there. I've ever heard this story, but they got like taken hostage by terrorists in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> oh, are you talking about um, uh, the Dawn Wall? By, um, yep. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> about Yosemite climb. But, it, but, but part of that is with his ex-wife. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so there's a book on that. Did you see there's also a, uh, I believe Netflix did a story of the Dawn Wall, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. That climb is the way they worked on that. It's worth watching. Yeah. And the reason I ask is you mentioned climbing. So let's talk about some of your climbing. What's the what's the craziest experience you've ever had while climbing? Any experiences where death seemed close or you were flirting with death? Any cool stories that you can share from all that? Any terrorists? Um, <laughs> no terrorists, nothing like that. But lots of, you know, crazy kind of youthful stuff. We were climbing a peak in, I'm dating myself now, at 87, right next to Kenjin Duke. It's a 25,000-foot peak called Janu. It has a super, super long route. And I went with one of my closest friends and other folks. And, and you know, we were in some very hairy places and kicking off avalanches. And I was truly, truly wow. scared. But I've been in places like that where I've been truly scared, but largely in control. That was a unique experience. Probably the scariest thing was actually very close to home. I was living in Seattle, and there was a peak called Mount Constance. And I went climbing with the founder of uh, that software company that I talked to you about earlier. And mm-hmm. we were going super fast, and we were coming down this um, couloir. It was spring, and I hit a patch of ice, and I took a spill, and I ended up falling about 1,500 feet down a very, very steep snow slope. And I have no memory of it. I had a big head concussion. Wow. Um, it must have been awake because there were very significant rock areas. So 
I must have steered myself through that, but I have no memory of it. And I put my ice axe through my knee. And so, but that was in my, you know, arguably in my own backyard. So wow. one of the most hazardous things that's ever been happened. Life. But there's a lot of, you know, when you're young, you do stupid stuff. There's a lot of kind of, now I look at it as my kids did. I might be terrified. For <laughs> do you still actively climb then? And if so, are there any like bucket list climbs you haven't done yet that you're still planning to try to do? It's always bucket list climbs. So the answer is no. Nowadays, I have two teenagers, so they're both got out. They both have gone downward bound and, and as part of that. But and every year on Father's Day and my birthday, we have to do some sort of climbing here. It's generally something. It's something that's hard physically, but not hard subjectively hazardous. Nice. So I'm happy to get out like that. <laughs> yeah, you did it. Now you're now you've moved on to safety. Yeah, I'm happy to just get out. There. Although I do, you know, I still read a lot, watch it. Nice. Now, another couple of questions we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what CEO or founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You know, the standard answers are, you know what they are, whether it's Elon Musk or Bezos or something like that. And I do really admire these guys who can build these multiple businesses on these platforms and you just, these forces of nature. But probably if I had to answer, I've been on the board of this nonprofit called One Heart Worldwide. Mm-hmm. And the founder is a nurse practitioner who had lived in Tibet and started doing these maternal health and building these remote hospitals up in the Himalayas for people. And then when the Tibet uprisings happened in the early 2000s, she moved the whole operation to Nepal. And now we serve, I think, don't hold me to this, 26 or 27 of the mountainous provinces in Nepal. I've gone over there after the earthquake. And so you know, in terms of leadership, like you start something from nothing and then you have to restart it again from nothing. And then you build it and you raise money around the world and you're doing this amazing service around, you know, maternal health care with really amazing outcomes. And it's just sort of, it's not in the world of business as we think about it, but, you know, it was an incredible feat and I was super honored to work with her. Yeah. Those are the types of leaders that we love to hear about with these questions. It's like, you know, Bezos and Musk. It's like, of course, we all yeah. can admire them, right? It's like a, a no brainer. So I, I always like hearing those, uh, those others that aren't, you know, maybe on the radar as much as them, but there's just so much you can learn. Yeah. Taking nothing away from those personalities, whether it's Jobs or Bezos or Musk, like, but it, this is a very different, different arena. And more, I'm, you know, and frankly, consistent with, my reading and stuff, I'm not that interested in the business stories. I'm interested in the human stories. On the topic of books, let's go there. So I, I stole this from someone else, but they call it a quake book. So it's a book that just like rocks your core and changes how you view the world. Do any quake books come to mind for you and books that really just influenced how you think about the world? For sure. There are books I love. And then I like that term quake books. You know, in 2000, when everything was falling apart mm-hmm. and, you know, everything we had built and all these people we a friend of mine gave me literally the book, When Things Fall Apart by Pima Children. And she's a Buddhist nun, and she's written a number of books. But, but that book particularly was super relevant and grounding for me. It was probably one of the toughest times in my life. And I still go back to it. I reread it every three or four years. It's just, you know, it's a description. You know, we're both in the tech world. It's a description about, like, the world is just happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And any illusion of control that you control what's happening is is just that, an illusion. And so how do you work with it when things really fall apart? And um, yeah, it's just a powerful book, worth reading. Nice. But I also, you know, I love climbing books. I love, you know, I still, I read a lot of science fiction stuff too. So it's, it's a broad base. Have you heard of The River of Doubt, the book? 
Yeah, I read that. Yeah, it's quite good. Just yeah, finished that. President of the United States, he was doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, pretty insane. I think that's like my favorite adventure book. I've been getting very into like adventure books lately, and I finished that like a month ago. And that's a fun read. I, I tend to enjoy those more than like business books now. Business books just like they get a little bit boring after a while. They do. The River of Doubt. That's fascinating. Did you? Um, so if you like adventure books, you must have read Endurance. Yep. <laughs> Shackleton. Um, <laughs> um, it's the classic. And, you know, another book that's actually timely that's worth reading is called The West Ridge by Tom Hornbein, who just died two weeks ago. Um, it's the original American expedition to Everest. And the most of the expedition went up what's called now the South Call Route, mm-hmm. which, is, you know, they're called it's a milk run. It's the most common way up. It had been done before a couple of multiple times before the Americans got there. But Willie Unsold and Tom Hornbein did the West Ridge, which still isn't repeated very often. And they bivvied at 28,000 feet. Willie lost his toes. You know, it was just such a great story. Anyway, you like, I just, I digress. You can cut this out of that part. <laughs> I'll leave it there and I'll check that out. That's the type of stuff it's we great. can do. And, and just because he died a couple of weeks ago, it was, uh, yeah. Nice. All right. Adding that to the list after, uh, after the interview is done. Now, let's talk a bit about Influx Data. So for those who aren't familiar, can you just tell us a bit about what the company does and, and what the product suite includes? Yeah, for sure. So we, and I just I want to say we, is my partner is Paul Dix. Paul founded the company. It's probably worth talking about how we met. I was working at Trinity Ventures as an executive in residence. Paul and I met. We're both CrossFitters, which is, if you've never met anybody at CrossFit, they'll tell you in the first three minutes that they CrossFit. I was going to say, you didn't tell us at the start of this interview. <laughs> and, so we bonded. and so we bonded around that stuff, which was great. And then we connected because, you know, because I had started my own company and run it and got it through the process. So I had a sense of what this emotional journey was like. And so we connected around that stuff. And so Paul had this vision. He had worked on Wall Street. He built time series databases which is what we do is really work with metrics and events at scale. And he had built for a number of Wall Street firms on top of other databases like Postgres or Cassandra. And he just realized it was, a you know, what he would call as a bit of a yak shape, which is basically you have to do a ton of work just to do a ton of work. And everybody else, everybody's repeating the wheel time and time again. You know, they're doing the same thing over. And he was very involved in the open source community. He was deeply committed to he ran the machine learning meetup in New York. He's just deeply committed to the whole open source thing. Mm-hmm. And he and a friend of his started Influx going through Y Combinator and they built a time series database. And their idea was, is to build all the capability to handle these metrics and events at scale. Mm-hmm. And his first thought was some of this observability stuff that's happening out there. But, but the broader thought for me was IoT. And so they built it and they built it for developers. So it's schema-less, it's super easy to use, it built... It now is the largest time series platform or metrics and events platform in the world by far. It's got a huge open source community. It's got, you know, the most GitHub stars within DB engines. It's larger than the next eight combined. And so it's just of a size because of his vision about this category as developers didn't want to build this stuff from scratch. They could start with a database that was built for this, which is what's happening in the database world. You have these specialty databases. And so we've got this tremendous open source community that we've built around. And that's what's allowed us to raise the money and build the business. In terms of what we do, just to be more specific and help you out here, is there are two areas that we specialize. Basically, it's the instrumentation of systems. Mm-hmm. So 
if you can imagine, IoT is the easy one to understand. So you've got sensors all over the world. The world's getting increasingly sensified, healthcare, cars, transportation, industrial, energy. And all those sensors, they speak this language called time series, right? Pressure, volume, humidity, temperature, moisture, over time, a measurement, a measurement, a measurement, right? And so we're really good at collecting and ingesting that at scale at compressing that data so it's available for long periods of time, at summarizing it so you don't need to keep all of it forever, but most importantly, querying it in real time. And so particularly with AI coming on, querying in real time is really important. So the leading edge of data, you want responses in milliseconds. So I'm collecting data and I want to query it within a millisecond. That's what the database is really, really good at. And then the other side is your instrument software itself. So that's observability. So anything that runs in software. Network, telemetry, crypto, blockchain, lots of customers in all those areas. Just so we can understand the scale that you're operating at, are there any numbers you can share just in terms of you know customer size or community size and or growth? Any numbers that you can share just so we can try to comprehend the scale that you're operating at today? Yeah, sure. There are we have nineteen hundred customers. A very simple open source version of Influx on standard hardware can handle a couple of million points per second. When we cluster them and scale them together, you can handle billions and billions of points a second writing from, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, all of the Tesla power walls, the battery packs, Lucid cars, Salesforce's APIs with MuleSoft reporting, like anything that's happening at scale, whether it's in software or hardware and you're collecting on time, super important. The thesis here is really simple, Mm -hmm. which is we want our systems to be smarter and smarter. But we want them to be at a minimum, you know, correctable. Mm-hmm. And you want them self-healing. And then you want them autonomous. Well, it turns out every stage of that journey is about instrumentation over time. So take a self-driving car. You say a self-driving car is you instrument the car itself. You let it drive for a little while. You correct for anomalies. You let it drive while you correct for more anomalies. You then instrument it some more. And that journey, if you do it 45 billion times, you get a self-driving car, mm-hmm. right? But if you do it 10 times, you get a better operating observability system. You maybe get a better home thermostat. Like there's just a variety. But the whole thing is driven by this instrumentations and measurements. And so these companies have emerged, and we're not the only ones who are really good at data, collecting data at its scale, which drives these intelligent systems. So- It's a good way to think about it. We want increasingly intelligent systems, and it all starts with instrumentation. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And something else I want to ask about then based on that answer is around having an open source product and an open source company. I think it's widely known like the benefits of having open source and running that business model. What are some of the downsides? What are some of the challenges that you have to constantly navigate or maybe more in the early days that you had to navigate because you were open source? Yeah, I mean, the classic open source is, um, and since I joined Paul in 2016, the database, I think its first commits were 2000, early 2014. But I joined Paul in 2016. The classic, you know, the headline during that period of time were the only people who ever made money in 
in open source were was Red Hat. And that was before Mongo. Mongo probably had a flat round at that time. Couchbase maybe had a down round. Elastic really didn't even exist at any scale. There was no confluent. There weren't these successful open source companies to look at. And, and the primary issue was people were selling support. You build something on your open source stuff and you'd support it. And if you're a big enough company after a while, you didn't need the vendor. You could just support yourself. The source code was there. And so we took the model to build what's called open core, which is the open source is free. It's completely useful. But once you get up to a certain scale, you have to buy our closed source software. So the trick for all the open source companies is how do you effectively monetize these very large communities you built? I, you don't hold me to the exact numbers, but you're a phenomenal open source company if you can monetize 1% of your community. Wow. About, because there are so many hobbyists and casual users and people who figure out lots of large companies use Influx without paying us anything. Now, it's our job to continue to add value so they'll pay us. So we offer the product. We offer it as a in a serverless form in the cloud. Yeah. So people can just pay as you go, sir. We offer it a dedicated form in the cloud. And then we offer it on prep. So we offer it all three ways. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of value built between close us and open us. And that's what's gotten us these nineteen hundred customers. But the challenge is always what do you do for the community? And then what do you do to monetize the business? And and striking that balance is really important. Are there any specific features you can think of or things that you can think of where you had to make hard decisions and maybe they were like heavily debated internally if it should be part of the open source version or the paid version? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I joined in 2016, we had to raise, you know, we had to raise that first real Series B. Mm-hmm. And we had not planned, we had planned on keeping the clustering and the high availability in the open source. So that would make even a larger community because then it would be super powerful in the open source. But we were faced with kind of an existential threat as we couldn't keep funding the company and building the database if we didn't find a way to monetize. And so it was, uh, you know, by March of that year, Paul and I went through this incredible process with us, our investors. I talked to about 15 different open source CEOs and we made the decision to bring clustering into the closed source and not make it available in the open source. And if you go back to Hacker News at that time, you know, the open source community can be, you know, it's great, but people people could be very, very neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> back to Hacker News at that time, Paul was taking so many shots over the bow for that decision. It was the right decision for us as a company, but it's a tricky thing to navigate. But your answer is right. It's a tricky thing to navigate. And something else that I picked up on as you were explaining what the company does is that you're a very effective communicator. Yeah, I'm a non-technical person. And how you explain the product was very, very clear, very simple, very straightforward. And I think that's something that a lot of companies struggle with is how do you explain a technical product in easy terms? Have you always been that effective at communicating or was this a skill that you had to really nurture and develop over the course of your career? So in order to buy, in order to answer your question, I have to buy into the assumption that I'm effective at communicating. You know, my wife and kids might disagree a little bit, but the answer is I will take some credit. So I think partly because I'm not a double E, mm-hmm. and at a young age, I was managing double E's and software engineers at least had to know. I think I'm good at conceptually understanding how stuff works, hmm. right? And so I'm not a coder per se, and but I'm conceptually good at understanding how stuff works. And so... It's like in medical school, you're forced under the pressure of see one, do one, teach one, which is you see a surgery, 
you do a surgery, then you teach somebody else a surgery in the course of a relatively small period of time. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that. I can learn almost anything if I can sit in front of a whiteboard with a good engineer. Hmm. Which I think what makes you know makes Paul and I really great partners, and my former CTO is really great partners. Is I love being in front of whiteboards. I kind of hate powerpoints, although I use them extensively. But I like whiteboards, and I like people explaining. And I like to be able to ask unfettered questions. And let me out, sort of like you do in podcasts. Like, just mm-hmm. like follow your interest, and that makes it better because once I once I understand it, then I can feel like I can teach it. That makes a lot of sense, and that's that's super helpful to hear. Now let's talk a little bit about growth and I guess really what you got right. So 1,900 customers, obviously this is you know, a lot of different companies in this space. There's a lot of noise in this space. What do you think you got right there in the early days to really break through all that noise and to, to win in the way that you have won? I'm sure there's a long list of things you got right, but what would be some of those like top things that come to mind? So funny. It's so easy for me to think about the things I got wrong. The things I got right, I don't you know, discount those right away. I think what, and it's not me, I think what Paul got right with the original build was he took a chapter out of Mongo's playbook and did really great at this. And the former CEO of Mongo's on our board is a good friend. And what Mongo got right was in a world where Oracle and Postgres were the standard, they figured out something, a document database that was really easy to use, super easy for developers to work with. In the beginning, not that reliable, but over time became very reliable. And they figured out how to really engage developers early in that. And what Paul got right completely was that approach to the time series category by making it schema-less, by building the capabilities directly in, by allowing it to scale horizontally. Just a bunch of stuff that made it really easy for developers to engage, quickly learn, install. So the hurdle that you see with most databases, whether it's you know traditional MySQL or Postgres, or coming over, having to get over a big wall just to use it, didn't exist with it. It was very easy to start working with. Mm. And then it was pretty easy to stay working with, which was the, the real benefit of it. And that's been our calling card, the concept we call time to awesome. How quickly can a developer feel like they're useful? And developer where it all starts for us. Mm-hmm. For me, talking to a CIO is an exercise in vanity. Because you don't go to a CIO and say, hey, listen, you need a new time series engine, right? You start with a developer, you win an architecture, and then you explain to a CIO or a CTO why this is important, why it will scale with their business, why it actually creates competitive advantage. And you mentioned there are things that you got wrong. What's like the <laughs> biggest thing you got wrong, would you say? Oh, I got so many things wrong, man. I think we, in intellectual, honestly, mm-hmm. we pivoted the company. We believe, obviously, and I think we're correct, is the cloud was going to be the primary way people were going to consume these databases. And so it was really important that we got there. And so we went to, you know, a Kubernetes backbone and a serverless, and we built on that. And it took a lot of our resources. And we probably didn't invest as much time in the open source mm-hmm. as we could have during that period. And so consequently, our monetized enterprise customers were, didn't grow as fast as our cloud customers. But now in our world, we realize, particularly in IoT, that it's almost always a three-tier architecture in which there's something local at the edge, and then there's something in the cloud. We could have invested more on those on-prem deployments in those enterprise deployments during those period of years. We're now correcting for that really strongly. We have a, a new release out, our 3.0 version, which we're incredibly excited about. 
But yeah, if I could take it back, I would have done stuff a little bit differently. I probably would have supported SQL earlier. We didn't support native SQL. We supported a variant of SQL. I rather would have supported that earlier. So there is a thing we would have done. But you know, if you ask us, there are hundreds of things we, we should have done. I'm not wish I would air out all of our dirty laundry. <laughs> we'll save that for part two of the podcast. It'd be like a four hour, four hour episode. By the way, my philosophy after, you know, my three long stints as a CEO is if you can get 60, 65% of the stuff you're doing right, you're going to have an amazing company. Mm. <laughs> I like that. How do you make decisions like that to ensure that you're at that type of rate of, you know, 60, 70%? Are there things that you do to try to really optimize decision-making to support that goal? Or what do you do just you know, behind the scenes when it comes to making big decisions? Yeah, it's not enough to just make the right decision. The most important thing you do is enroll everybody in the decision process as much as possible. And for the most part, I think we do that pretty well, which is, this is if I have to tell somebody to do something, I've already lost. So my view is I have to enroll people in whenever we're doing, whatever big change, whatever pivot, whatever dynamic we're doing. And so, so in order to enroll people, you have to let people it's a terrible way to say it. You have to let people own it a little bit. So like your dog in your yard, they have to be able to pee on the corners. They have to be able to say, yeah, I can I can see the edges of this problem. I can see how you thought about it. I can understand how you, you're conceptualizing it. I'm in agreement. And in the rare case, you know, you'll get the Catholic Amazon thing, which is you agree to disagree, but you commit. And so there's the process of selling. There's the process and they're related. The process of enrolling people is also the process of analyzing the problem. So if you can do that with a core group of committed constituents, owners, like that's how you make the best decisions. That's how you get 65 or 70%. Still don't get 100% because the world's doing its thing around you, but you maximize your chance of both making the best decision and then executing reasonably on it. Because it's one thing to make a decision. I'd like to be in the AI business. It's another thing to then say, I'm executing this. I'm executing to be in my business. And if we look at the organization, how many people are employed today, full time, roughly? I think we're like 175 or something. And is this all in office? So is everyone here in Silicon Valley, or is it distributed team? No, it's not. So from the beginning, and this is a learning for me. From the beginning, we were probably 70, 65, 70 percent remote because of the open source background. We hired developers, particularly wherever they live and wherever they work. And so we're always a remote first company. We had an office in San Francisco that was pretty significant. And we we're about to sign for, you know, the classic three more floors at, at 799 Market. And then COVID hit. And obviously we went all remote for a little while. And then it was pretty easy to stay all remote. I miss some of, I really do miss some. So now we have some places where we convene and we're more aggressive about convening around the world. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but we're a remote, we're remote first and now a remote primary. And let's talk a little bit about your home. Yeah, yeah. How important do you think it is to be in Silicon Valley if you're a, a startup founder today? If you were starting a company today and you were, say, let's, or maybe you're 22 years old and you could choose to go anywhere in the world, would you go to Silicon Valley or where would you go? So I'm going to answer with a double negative, which is it's not not important. What I mean by that is, you know, I came from Seattle. Most of my career was in Seattle. I moved here to run a public company in 2009. And Seattle had a very rich community. Austin has a really rich community, Boston, and then other places, mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. But it is just, you know, after having lived here now for 14 years, 
and uh, raise now my teenagers here, you know, there's such a strong network of information, capital, innovation that it's hard. It's duplicated other places until you can tell. I started a business in Seattle that was successful with that business, but I would say you have some advantage being here. At least, you know, the whole company doesn't have to be here, but there's some advantage being here. You know, people have seen the movie so many times here. Is it to meet somebody who's been through, you know, four different episodes and learn something from each episode, right? Yep. A little harder in other places. A little bit harder. So there's some. So I'm not saying it's definitively important, but I'm saying it's pretty nice. One thing I've been just mind blown about here in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley in general is like the density and like the volume and like just the number of people around who have done this before. I've never seen anything like that. And I'm sure Austin does have some of that. But if you're just looking at volume and density, it's just insane. The amount of founders who are here building stuff, VCs, executives who've done it. It's just insane. Yeah, there's no, I don't feel like, listen, there's no expertise Mm -hmm. that I would want to learn from. And I'm pretty active about seeking mentors or different other folks who know stuff. I don't know. There's no expertise that I would feel like I have to look outside of Silicon Valley and find at least in the world of, you know, growing tech businesses. Is there a specific skill that you're trying to really focus on developing and improving now? Like, do you have a mentor that you're working with for something very specific, anything like that that you could share? I work with an executive coach. It's the first time, and this is late in my career. And, you know, COVID was one of the things that, you know, I started feeling pretty isolated, just working out of my house all the time. And so I work with an executive coach. He sort of helps me on that, and I would recommend that to other CEOs. There's not any one particular skill. I think it's, you know, just having somebody, you know, what happens in the CEO role, as I said earlier, you're carrying the ball all the time on weekends, nights. You never really put the ball down. Mm-hmm. And so you're always thinking about it. And so it's really nice for CEOs to have somebody to dialogue with who's not on their team, not on their board not a customer. You can dialogue with all of those people and have rich discussion, but it's really nice to have something. So so mostly I just use it is to be able to think out loud. I have a couple of board members who I do that well, that really well with, and that's mm-hmm. just on their side that you can do that with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But it's not a particular skill at this point in my career. It's more just the ability to sort of think out loud with people in a safe environment. And now you're you're seven years in, something like seven years into this journey. What motivates you day to day? And do you ever have days where you struggle with motivation or are you just ready every single day to wake up and run through walls? Yeah, I do like, so of course you have days that struggle with motivation. I like to say, like, I don't think I'm particularly smart. I don't think I'm particularly gifted, but maybe it's my climbing background, but I'm pretty relentless. Mm -hmm. So I know how to get up and work every day. I know how to do the hard things. I'm comfortable doing hard things. I think that is the natural skill that I bring to the table. And so I find a way through it. I find a way through it. I have a great partnership with our founder, Paul, and we're connected to each other. And so when one of us is in the verbal shitter, the other one can, you know, like, oh, no, look at this side of it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a journey, man. You know, people like to talk about all the glory of all this stuff. And the glory is great, but it's the journey. It's a journey. In that journey, have there been any near-death experiences at the company or anything you can share where it you know, got close? Or would that have been more of the, the early days before you came in? Because you came in, I think it was about four years into the journey. Did that happen maybe before? No, you know, this is, I had, I had near-death experiences in business. 
you know, the one I described to you in 2000 was, you know, we, we had $10 million swept from our cash cash account by Silicon Valley Bank right at the edge of the bubble. You know, I definitely had near-death experiences. But no, not on influx. It's been relatively, it's not always been easy. Every year's not been as good as, you know, some years are good, some years are bad or not as good. But no, never had. I've had, we have a very strong investor group of tier one capital providers, a really sharp board, a talented exec team. I mean, I just feel, I feel very lucky. And if we look at your journey here, journey at other companies and really just career in general, based on all of that, if someone were starting a company today, let's say one of your children, they said, Dan, I'm, I'm going to be a founder. I'm going to start an enterprise B2B tech company. What's the number one piece of like tactical advice that you would share? So not advice like, oh, you know, work hard, be relentless. Like what's something very, very tactical that you would advise them to do and think about? So I answer it with a little bit of background. You know, when I started my first company, I started because I was tired of, and I think entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs feel this way. I had a unique point of view about a particular problem. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And I think you always have to have that if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur. In our case, Paul had that unique point of view. Since mm -hmm. I came in a little bit later, but but I really culturally what I wanted for myself was I was tired to fitting into other people's systems. But mm -hmm. I, you know, you spend a certain amount when you work for a company, figuring out how to fit into other people's culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say you use up some of your creativity and some of energy just in that fitting process, right? Mm -hmm. It's normal. It's it's fine. It's not it's not a big deal. But for me, I got kind of tired of that. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I want to start a company so that I don't have to fit in because I'd be the CEO. I'd be the culture. I wouldn't have any boss. Well, that was pretty naive because, you know, what ends up is you have like 200 bosses. You don't have one, right? You don't have, And so, and the culture you build, you still have to, you know, you still have to fit it to that. And you, and you don't build that by yourself. You build that collectively with a group of employees. It's not. You know, it's not like, I, you know, this is the way it's going to be. Write it on the dorm room poster and publish it, mm -hmm. right? More like collectively, what is it? And so we did our first values as a company. It was a collective process, right? And I have to fit into that. I have to fit into that culture. So what I would say, to turn around as an advice, is don't start a company just because you want to be your own boss. Start a company because you're ready for the journey. The journey is incredibly honorable. It's incredibly rich. It's incredibly fulfilling, but it's brutal. It can be brutal, right? That's the first thing I'd say is do it for the journey. The second thing I say is if you don't think you're a salesperson, you're wrong. 97% of your job is, I like to say, enrolling, but it's selling. Mm -hmm. Selling customers, selling employees, and selling investors. 3% is some sort of brilliance about strategy, you know? And so- Unless you get comfortable. So ironically, I'd want, you know, if it was one of my kids, I'd want them to have some sales experience, right? If they were an engineer, I'd want them to have been an SE or, or some at the customer cold phase. You know, I want, I, want, I want them to learn to be good communicators and engaging people. And final question, since I know we're, we're up on time here. What's next in this journey? What's the next three to five years going to look like for you? I think we have something special here. You know, it takes a special relationship for a CEO to come in with a founder, and Paul and I have built that kind of relationship. We have a group of people who are, you know, I get inspired by the people I work with. Some days I look, I, when I feel that down, I'm like, I'm seeing this other person do something that was amazing, and I'm like, I'm inspired by it. 
And so I feel like we've got this really great foundation. I feel like the opportunity is really large, even in these tougher markets. We're not using less data. The AI stuff is very real. It's starting to happen. We're a market leader in this space. And so at this point in the game, I care less about the glory, but I care more about delivering as a steward for my investors, my employees, my customers. And so I'm truly motivated by that. Amazing. I love it. All right. Well, we are up on time or we're over on time here. So I won't, I won't hold you any longer, but this has been so much fun. If people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Well, aren't we doing this every week for the next 25 weeks? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, just tune in next week. <laughs> it's um, influxdata.com. Amazing. Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and, and share the lessons that you've learned along the way and really just have an awesome, fun conversation. I really enjoyed this conversation and I know our audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. I really appreciate it. All right. Give it touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.